0: Hey everyone, you're listening to Dialogos, a Harker Philosophy Club podcast. I'm Akshay. I'm Sophia. And I'm Quentin. And today we'll be talking about violence, individual violence, state violence, and whether violence can be justified or not justified, and whether we should use civil disobedience or endorse a sort of violent response to oppression or other violence.
1: So what really is violence? Some people consider taxes violence. Some people consider certain institutions violent. Some people consider even certain speech acts violence. Today, what what we're going to define it as uh, is the use of force or power to inflict harm on an individual or institution. Uh, This can be both physical and non-physical.
2: Yeah, so brief history of uh the kind of theories and philosophies on individual violence in history we have to kind of start with eastern philosophies and religions most notably the dharmic religions so uh hinduism jainism buddhism uh which had a concept called a or himsa uh which said that violence was in most cases morally required as a result of your interconnectedness with other beings which makes violence upon the self a form of violence upon others Uh, How much this was actually implemented depended pretty heavily on the religion. Uh, Obviously, Hinduism mostly abandoned this in favor of conquest and maintaining the rigid caste system. Uh, That hierarchy was something that the people in power strongly tried to enforce for obvious self-interested reasons. Um, But uh, Jainism and Buddhism would influence some large political leaders like Emperor Shukha of India to change the nature of their empires to kind of more fit a pacifist worldview. Uh, which all eventually crumbled because they couldn't defend themselves. Moving back towards the West and uh, the kind of Christian religion uh, and Judaism as well. One of the Ten Commandments, obviously, is uh, thou shalt not kill in English. But obviously, this was mostly dismissed by modern Christian interpretations, even as early as the Crusades, because you can't crusade without killing people. Uh, Just kind of like the necessity of the Christian pursuit of power required them to abandon that kind of very basic tenet.
1: Okay, so we're just going to talk a little bit about something called civil disobedience. A little bit of history on the term. It was coined by uh, the philosopher Henry Thoreau in his essay on civil disobedience. It was kind of defined as state nonviolent resistance. So basically the rioting or the expression of disapproval of the state without any actual violence or destruction of property. There have been many people throughout history who've been in favor of this. For example, the most famous ones are people like Gandhi, people like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who took this to kind of stick it to state institutions that were inherently oppressive, colonial, racist, etc.,
0: It's kind of important to note that, as Sophia mentioned, civil disobedience is not equal to um, being completely peaceful. Rather, it refers to not directly attacking people and still disrupting the the state of things. So if you were to have a chain of people spread across the highway to prevent any traffic from going across, that would be certainly disruptive and would certainly create attention um, to kind of the issues that you're protesting about. But probably no one would be directly harmed as a result. And so that's kind of the distinction that they're going for. And so that can be, I guess, put aside because people can think of nonviolence as like only doing things like sending letters to legislators or only voting, but it's more expansive than that for sure. And they're both arguments for nonviolence and against nonviolence. One of the main reasons for nonviolence is that it's been politically successful, um, both in the past and in the present, like the idea that by maintaining an element of nonviolence, movements were able to keep the discussion focused around their issues, um, while still kind of disrupting the frame of reference of the society, while still making sure that the discussion was not shifted away um, by focusing on their tactics instead. Um, and kind of talking about the like nature of violence, and that was shown in kind of the Indian case in the 1940s, the civil rights movement in the 60s, and so on and
2: so forth. Yeah, I definitely think that that there's both kind of the purely strategic reasons for non for political nonviolence for civil disobedience, and there's also the kind of moralistic reasons where people have other kind of psych constraints about why they don't want to harm others. Um, but it's obviously worth noting here, as we noted above, that people's definition of violence varies. Uh, Like an ultra conservative may hear the highway example and be like, you're hurting the free market because you didn't let people go to their jobs, which like lowers GDP, which is violent. So obviously kind of depends on the group, what they consider violence, what they consider important, what their goals are, et cetera. There's no violence in a vacuum. It's only in relation to what groups believe.
0: People can also indict nonviolence for a couple of things as well. And I guess these also kind of center around the reasons why violence is good. For example, they say that um, violence would be necessary to break down the system. Uh, This kind of revolves around the idea of a social contract or a broken social contract, the idea that society has certain goods that it can provide to its citizens, which is why we kind of buy into the whole society thing. It's, It's why like when you go to the grocery store, you pay. Um, Well, you don't want to be arrested, but there's also the idea that if you contribute as a member of society, then you get the goods of that society, like getting like fruit or milk or whatever, when you go to the grocery store. Um, But when people feel that that sort of contract that kind of bind within society has been broken, that they are contributing to society, but not getting its fruits. That's when people turn to extra societal measures like violence and like trying to break down society to get a more just society or one that is more responsive. I think Trevor Noah did a really interesting piece on this, um, and we'll link that in the description as well, that really sums up this concept nicely.
1: Yeah, I think um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of, I think, the most famous state resistance philosophy of all time, which is anarchism. Uh, A left-leaning anarchist would say something like, all politics is violence, by voting, you are deciding where pa- violence should go. By supporting prison, you are deciding that those people shall sh- shall suffer. What keeps the homeless man who is starving upon the street from walking into a Safeway and eating bread to fulfill his basic human need? The fact that'll be get beat up by the cops. That is a decision. Um, that you're prioritizing or an anarchist would say that one is prioritizing the concepts of like private property and protecting the CEOs of Safeways Capital um, via violence over someone's individual human need. And they would say that's bad and that uh, violence is justified. Stealing violence against the police is justified in that situation because these institutions are inherently violent And having a stateless society is the most peaceful. And they think that violence is the only thing that works because, you know, if you have someone who's unafraid to use violence against you and you do not retaliate with violence, then that kind of has a one sided power struggle.
0: It's also kind of interesting. The way people talk about the state is they talk about like the government as having kind of a monopoly over violence, where they explicitly conceptualize the government as being the only entity that can really deal deal violence exclusively and control people using violence. So things like the police, the courts, etc. And what's interesting is that that links to kind of the anarchist viewpoint, but they've taken it from the opposite direction. They also agree that the state has monopoly over violence, but that's not a good thing in preserving order. It's a bad thing um, when viewed from the individual perspective. So it's kind of interesting to see how those two perspectives kind of link up together. Uh, Something additionally, um, aside from just breaking down the system, like philosophies like anarchism might espouse, there are also ideas of self-defense in defense of violence. Obviously, this is just like if, violence occurs to someone, then they have the right to uh, use violence against that person or to defend themselves and protect themselves and preserve their own life. And this derives from a right to life, um, like a right to prosperity. Uh, And often people feel in, I guess, somewhat of like an eye for an eye kind of viewpoint that if violence is done to them, then that opens up the possibility for response to violence because the other person has already kind of brought violence into the situation. There's also another kind of interesting viewpoint brought to that. When taken to things like response to police violence, for example, people say that violence and self-defense is justified because individuals shouldn't be held to a higher standard than the state is. And I think that kind of, again, melds with the anarchist idea of should we hold individuals who exact violence to the same level that we hold like police who use violence, um, obviously like far far more greater than individuals do. Certain people would say no because they occupy special roles. Certain people would say that those roles don't mean anything. And I think that gets to the core of a lot of the debates there.
1: Just kind of adding on to sort of the self-defense things, um, the libertarians who um, can actually be left or right, but in the U.S., the Libertarian Party is a right-leaning one. Um, just, just for some clarification there, uh, they believe in limited government, not the elimination of government like like anarchists do, they have this uh, kind of theory um, called the non-aggression principle, the NAP. They like to call it for short, which means that you cannot aggress on someone else. It's kind of a deontological theory. Like it is just bad to aggress. But once someone comes on and comes out and aggresses either on you or your property, then they um, have made themselves open to violence or they have kind of consented uh, to, you know, being removed from your property or from your person with force.
2: Yeah, so I guess the kind of next big thing that we can talk about is like uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s use of nonviolence. Uh, We talked a little bit about this in the race episode last week, but he kind of viewed nonviolence both in terms of a political strategy because he thought it was better to try to convince moderate uh, white folk to support civil rights as kind of a mode of legislative reform. Uh, he was also religiously informed by his beliefs. He was uh, very much Christian, more so than like, you know, the Crusaders, I guess. So that informed a lot of his beliefs on uh, nonviolence. Uh, but he also thought that that kind of as a political project was unnecessary, that once civil rights had been achieved, there was probably more radical, drastic work to be done in order to bring about a truly egalitarian government for black Uh, government society for black folk.
1: So there are also some people who support violence against the state as just kind of a purging of the social conscious. Like these people will often believe that being kept as sheeple and going through their day-to-day banal lives uh, kind of builds anger um, and violence that comes out in kind of weird ways so they believe that violent events need to happen occasionally uh, for fun slash catharsis um in order to kind of get get their anger at day-to-day life out otherwise it kind of builds up and creates problems or so these people say and uh we also want to touch on kind of voting versus writing and kind of that dichotomy of whether you're influencing the state through violent means or other means, a lot of anarchists and similarly minded people will say that if voting did anything, it would be illegal that you have to affect the state from without outside of the state. Um, so that makes, you know, political disobedience and or rioting necessary.
0: And it's also, and I guess just, as the last point to frame all of this, that a lot of the pro-violence philosophies frame using violence against a very powerful elite, like that kind of controls everything about society, uh, whether it's like the government, whether it's the rich, whatever. And that kind of justifies use of extraordinary violence because other means would only be controlled by the rich and violence is something that you can do with your own body that is not as controllable. And I guess with that said, there are also kind of problems with violence that people bring up that kind of leads to this very rich debate about whether violence is justified or not. So, for example, when there's, you know, violence in the streets between uh, like people resisting the police and the police, for example, there are inevitably people caught in the crossfire, people who are not necessarily part of the fight, but rather just trying to kind of exist in their day-to-day lives, whether that's people of the majority or people of the minority, um, it can be equally devastating and harmful. And arguably, um, for people who are against violence, it can, that kind of crossfire effect can happen to the people who are the worst off because they lack the protection from the crossfire that people who are more privileged can get. And so that would make violence more counterproductive than it is productive.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to kind of parrot that one thing Akshay said earlier, which is that most philosophies that endorse violence do not endorse violence as any sort of intrinsic good, but instead as good to achieving some external end, which is different contrasted to nonviolence, where there's a kind of rigorous defense of both. Again, besides like niche groups like insurrectionary anarchists, most people agree like violence in a vacuum, probably bad, but necessary to achieve various political ends.
1: We also just want to talk a little bit about. Uh, people who are nonviolent because it would go against their, the very cause that they are fighting for. For example, a lot of Vietnam protesters, and if we go back even further, World War I, World War II, protesters, because they were pacifists, swore themselves off violence because that would go against the very message that they're protesting, that they believe that violence was unconditionally bad, and again, on a deontological level, a lot of people would not lash out even if they perceived it as being the best way to achieve institutional change or whatnot. Um, we have a pretty powerful example of this. the philosopher Bertrand Russell, although he was in in World War one um and even before it he was silenced and i I believe he lost his position at a university for a short time, um, I want to say, because he was very against the war, war, very pacifistic, very against nationalism, said that uh, we should not be kind of swept up in national conflicts for glory or whatnot. Um, He peacefully protested and opposed violence on that level. So he encouraged other people to peacefully protest as well.
2: Um actually uh uh Sophia you mentioned Vietnam War protests which made me realize that there was a like somewhat large group in American culture that we forgot to discuss which is like uh, members of like the new age uh who were just kind of a, a group or kind of a philosophy that developed around the 70s in America in response to kind of drastic interventions by the federal government their beliefs included like a weird mix of like the kind of Dharmic Eastern mysticist religions that we talked about earlier, as well as indigenous beliefs, as well as like various pagan beliefs, and this like I think a little incoherent modge, hodgepodge of just like we we're all spirits, like be hippies and like smoke weed or whatever. But it's, it's worth noting that they had a philosophy which encouraged nonviolence by kind of the same vector as we talked about earlier with the Dharmic religions, and so and they were relatively large uh, influencer at least in at least culturally politically like their movements were like relatively ineffective because they like didn't organize or anything particularly well but so so certainly culturally they had a drastic impact on the music on the art kind of kind of the dominant political thought at the time
0: and so on the other side of the ideological spectrum from people who um don't use violence because it would kind of harm others or because they're ideologically opposed to it like we just mentioned there are also people who didn't use violence purely because they thought that it wouldn't serve their own goals or that it would kind of backfire in some way. And I think this backfire effect is also that something that comes to mind when people think about um, why violence is bad. So I think the kind of main way that this is described argumentatively is that violence, instead of... It, Eliciting a response from kind of dominant groups to change their practices or anything. It would instead elicit more repressive crackdowns. It would empower kind of reactionaries or people who are even more opposed to kind of that marginalized group in the government because they would view them as greater threats, not lesser threats, and would be less amenable, not more amenable to kind of making any changes because violence is so disruptive to kind of the way that things happen and can pose like threats to the life of the people in power. And because of the nature of those crackdowns and those kind of policies that would be enacted in that environment would not only harm the people who are protesting and harm the marginalized groups who want better conditions in the first place, it would also undermine support for the movement as a whole because people would stop their support of the movement because they wouldn't want to associate themselves with the violence with a sort of violent movement or quote-unquote violent movement and I think this is kind of what people bring up when they talk about violent protests and then electoral outcomes how using violence can harm public support of a group or a group that's doing violent protest and so there are there's still a lot of debates about this there are plenty of studies that go back and forth on whether it has a positive or negative effect on public support of a movement and whether or not it necessarily consolidates the opposition against a group or makes their demand stronger, but it kind of varies.
1: Um, just something really quick. I want to bring up that right now in certain cities, we are seeing pretty significant backlash to certain violent, um, certain outbreaks of violence. Our president has ordered certain military officers and personnel to reside in certain cities where the violence has been particularly bad um, so that's kind of an increase of state power in and state capacity to inflict violence in reaction to a protest or a series of protests, rather.
2: Yeah, the the federal like troops thing is just like a little nuts. i like a little unprecedented in history. It's a, it's absolutely wild in like a bad way. We, we can <laughs> all
1: agree on that. <laughs>
2: yeah, I think I think when we talk about our, our like defensive state violence. Uh, I think, like, this is, like, one of the clearest counter-examples you could have is just, like, and it will inevitably get used for bad ends.
0: Yeah, I think that's, like, what a lot of left-leaning groups actually say is that um, that this sort of use of violence is inevitable. Like, I think they would say, like, places like Portland or, like, other protests were not that violent or were predominantly peaceful, but there was kind of a, a zeitgeist of uh, violent protests being conjured up by like the right or by people who want to use it for electoral ends. And because of that, the, the quote unquote troops were sent in.
1: Or people who want to um, get free stuff slash have fun, um, like the insurrectionary anarchist <laughs> posited.
0: And kind of the last argument uh, against violence is responding to the kind of theme of self-defense that comes up. And I think the the, the general way this response goes is like, violence by the state is bad and really bad actually. But uh, the, the response is that the the presence of violence does not intrinsically justify the response of violence because what a violence response would do would be even more ineffective and would ultimately like worsen the problem because of kind of the aforementioned back, backlash stuff. Um, it would distract the conversation from the original police violence by shifting the conversation to kind of the the new violence that occurred, which is like another element of backfiring. And I think this is kind of a a really big argumentative trick that is used by the anti-violence groups to kind of beat back a lot of the justifications for violence because it'll only make things worse. And so I think that when, when you look at a lot of justifications for why violence is bad, they'll follow that general theme of it'll result in worse things, even if they don't use like the, language of backfiring. I think that that encompasses a lot of different reasons why violence is bad. Of course, we've kind of talked about the individual response to state violence for why violence is justified, for why violence is not justified. Um, But in kind of a transition, now we're talking, we're going to talk about violence of the state itself, and why that may or may not be justified. And so kind of the main justifications for state violence in the current political climate that we live in is kind of the law and order type or you see, which kind of argues that violence um, and state violence is necessary to counteract violent crime or kind of deter the deterrent instantiations of violent crime or crime in general. Um, it relies on this idea of the deterrence effect that the threat of violence is ultimately necessary to compel people into not pursuing violent acts and um, that's, like, relatively pessimistic in a view of human nature, and I think that unites a lot of the reasons for state violence, that violence is ultimately kind of an, a, a tool that we don't want to use instinctually, but a necessary tool to compel decision-making by other people in, in ways that, like, act, act, quote-unquote, asking them nicely would not really accomplish. And so, like, people will point to, like, when, when talking about state violence, like, What do you do about, like, serial killers or rapists or murderers? And um, this is kind of, like, a common refrain both for people who talk about, like, abolishing police or abolishing prisons, that kind of state violence is necessary for these people who are somehow, like, irredeemable or to protect law-abiding people. And, of course, there are, like, various criticisms of that as well, but I think that's, like, the primary reason that you'll see.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, like, uh, bringing that, like, a little further, there's a couple more nuanced arguments that defenders of state violence can will should use one being like alternatives worse which I actually talked about a little bit but uh, this is obviously a little reductive but most people uh, absence like a strong enforcement of law and order the results would be like a total collapse of society anarchy which most people view kind of in like the hobbesian vein as just like being incredibly violent people would be do literally whatever they want we'd revert to a state of nature where we ran around raping and killing each other for fun the existence of some like incredibly unsuccessful anarchist societies or places where Uh, The governments have totally broken down, have proven that like in the absence of some sort of strong government, the results will be mafias and unfortunate living circumstance. Obviously, the left will respond to that by saying that their form of anarchy will resolve that problem via like whatever means, either by uh, kind of like a Maoist purge of everyone who doesn't believe in the anarchist society, or by literally just moving away from them, or by creating some other form of security force to deal with people like that. The other kind of element of that is the state or government forces being inevitable. People will argue that no matter what, people will be dragged towards some form of governance. So if for example, the US federal government doesn't use violence, then it will collapse, be replaced by a more authoritarian government who will use violence. So some people will argue that limitedly democratic societies that occasionally use incredibly brutal violence to maintain law and order, so to speak, would be justified because the alternative would be uh, either a hostile takeover by a foreign nation or a replacement by a more authoritarian government, which there would be no checks on.
0: Something interesting about your first point about Societies with and without order or like a, a kind of like strong government or a Leviathan um, and whether or not that leads to violence, um, like kind of before, like way back when, um, before we had kind of the society we do now, I think there are, there's like convincing like ethnographic and ar- archaeological evidence of like peaceful societies that didn't really have a strong government, but kind of lived in like a very peaceful manner. And so I think that's like, that's kind of an interesting an interesting way to view it that maybe humans aren't like intrinsically good or intrinsically bad or violent, but rather like we can be like socially conditioned based on the conditions we like grow up in. So if we grow up in a society that like emphasizes deterrence or kind of uses that as like the kind of frame to approach the way we think or the way we approach crime or something, then in the absence of that, everything will break down. But if you grow up in an alternative society, people don't even begin to think about that in the first place. And so it's about, like, the way people are conditioned to think and kind of the, like, overarching ideologies that are present in society that I think, like, I don't know, that's, like, that's, like, obviously just one viewpoint, but it, it seems relatively compelling.
2: Anthropologists have, like, a lot of takes about that. There are the Spartas of societies, and then there are some sub-Saharan African groups which were, like, almost universally peaceful and, like, communitarian in their living. It, there's there's definitely a rigorous debate to be had to be about that.
1: Um, Just kind of something interesting that I think we have to keep in mind during these discussions. I think Foucault brings up a really fantastic point on this, one of his only fantastic points, that basically wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in space and time, whatever society you occupy, that constructs your idea of human nature. So Hobbes being in a war-torn society affected his view of what human nature would be without that society. But here lies the paradox. His experience of human nature was still constrained by the society he lived in versus in, like, peaceful areas. Like, Rousseau lived in Paris in a fairly, like, peaceful area. So his view of human nature was too constrained by the society. So makes discussions like this pretty hard to say um because you know our views are always structured by laws and conditions of the people around us
2: yeah i think broadly that's referred to in philosophy as like standpoint epistemology it's like wherever your, your social location is um and like literal location in many instances uh will obviously be construed by uh you know what you believe in so like you know for example my personal views of violence as a like affluent mostly white male are obviously would obviously be very different than if I was like, uh, you know, uh, a black child living in uh, like an inner city sort of environment, my view of police would be different because of my personal interactions with them would be different, which is obviously something to take into account and attempt to correct for.
1: Yeah. So I think from that, uh, just to urge everyone listening to this and anyone who brings this up in conversation to just remember that you occupy your own standpoint with your own personal experiences Violence is perhaps one of the most personal concepts that is discussed in philosophy and has been discussed on this podcast. Just keep an open mind that if you get into really heated discussions with people about riots or police or whatnot, whatever side you occupy, that likely they have had different experiences than you that have shaped their argument.
0: Do we want to, like, talk about, like, state nonviolence or something? What
1: even state is state
0: nonviolence?
1: non-violence. <laughs> we don't know. The state is inherently violent.
2: State so. nonviolence is a joke. Like, no one actually thinks that, like, the state should exist but never use violence, right? Surely well, then the know. alternative is just not there be not being a state.
1: This, the state, like, in most revolutionary slash anarchist texts is just, like, defined as the violent part of the government.
0: Okay, not from, like, the super, like, lefty, like, view of the state that's, like, state always evil, but just, like, in general. I feel like it's more, like, embracing the, like, not the punitive paradigm, but, like, the kind of rehabilitative paradigm of punishment. Like, I think that's the closest to, like, state nonviolence
1: you can get. Like, prisons. and If the state was nonviolent, then there wouldn't be really anything to resist. I guess disarming the police has a lot to do with state nonviolence.
0: No, but I think this is more like the center-left idea. I guess for people who aren't really familiar with this kind of view, the the rehabilitative paradigm is just the idea that punishment does not serve to kind of exact like just desserts on someone who's done something bad, but instead tries to make them better people and members of society.
1: I've heard this argument, but I don't know how um, anyone could defend the current punishment system with that paradigm.
0: Looks like we can wrap it up there. Thanks for listening to that episode of the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, want to be on another episode of the podcast, email us at parkourphilosophyclub at gmail.com. You can email us to get on the mailing list and come to more meetings where we'll discuss topics like this and other fun philosophical topics. Please feel free to like, subscribe, recommend all of this to your friends, and keep on philosophizing. Bye-bye.